Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Cornell Schreiber. Cornell is a contributing editor for Canadian Money Saver magazine and is the host of the Build Wealth Canada show, a top personal finance and investing podcast created specifically for Canadians. There, he interviews the top personal finance experts to share their best strategies, tips, and tactics when it comes to investing and financial planning in Canada. Cornell's mortgage burning story is similar to my own. He managed to pay off his mortgage in only six years while still in his 20s and became financially independent at the age of 32. In my interview with Cornell, we discuss how he managed to pay off his mortgage super quick on a modest salary, creating your own source of passive income, and being a successful landlord. Without further ado, here's my interview with Cornell Schreiber. Hi, Cornell. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, it was uh, great having you on my show, and it's fun to, uh, to be able to talk uh, again as well. Awesome. So let's get started. So you paid off your mortgage in only six years while still in your 20s. With so many Canadians struggling to afford homes in big cities, how did you manage to accomplish this impressive financial feat? And how did it feel to be mortgage-free at such a young age? Sure. So I think one of the things we did is we made sure we got an inexpensive house that would allow us to have a 50% savings rate. Uh, And so that was kind of a big thing. Our whole idea there was that my wife's salary, we wanted to cover our mortgage payments and our day-to-day expenses, like groceries, gas, et cetera. And we wanted my salary to be able to put towards paying down the mortgage quick or invest or spend however we'd like. So that was kind of a big thing is instead of buying the most expensive house we could afford or that the mortgage broker or bank told us we could afford. Instead, we said, well, what's the least expensive house we could get where we still are, are happy, you know, where, where it's not a complete dump, but you know, still in the safe neighborhood, all that. Um, and to allow us to have that 50% savings rate. And so that's really what I would say set us up for success. And that was really a big uh, foundation. Uh, the other thing is we didn't move uh, you know, necessarily into a big city. We didn't really go into, you know, we, we didn't try to buy a house downtown Toronto and work in downtown Toronto. And one interesting thing there is I think, at least from what I've seen so far, it, I get the impression that the housing the, the extra salary you might get working somewhere like downtown Toronto compared to like a different city, like where we live now, Kitchener-Waterloo, it doesn't seem like that increase in salary offsets the much higher cost of living to live in a city like that. I mean, obviously the housing is a ton more expensive and then other things are more expensive too, right? Just because, you know, property is more expensive than general and that affects everything else as well. Uh, and so I think that had a really big impact as well is that, you know, we went to another city that still had good employment, still had a good job prospects, but what we're not paying so much for housing. So I think that made a really, really big, uh, big difference. Well, that's great. And yeah, how did it feel to not have a mortgage at such a young age? I mean, like my father, he had his mortgage until 65, like have your mortgage paid off so young, similar to me. Uh, 
for me. I know it was felt great. It felt like the weight of my world was lifted off my shoulders, especially with how precarious employment is these days. So how did it feel for your family just not to have those mortgage payments coming out of your bank account every month? Oh, it was, it was amazing. Like just to not see that money come out every single month. It was, it was great. And I remember one of the things that motivated us in the kind of in the beginning when we were still had the mortgage was I thought, Oh wow. Like I I would see how much money they're taking off every month for the mortgage. And I thought, Oh my goodness, what if we didn't have what if they didn't take that away? I mean, that would be so much money every month that we could spend on whatever we want. We could do more vacations. We could do all these other things, right? And so that was the big motivator. And so when we hit that, we, you know, I mean, it was it was amazing. It was like it's like a big weight lifted off your shoulders. What's what's funny though is that. It, because, you know, in, in like the under six years that it took us to pay off the mortgage, you know, in that time we developed a lifestyle and we got used to a lifestyle, uh, you know, particular lifestyle to be able to save that much. And so when we finally did pay off the mortgage, even though we had all this extra money, we kind of learned that you there's other ways to get happiness that like you can't just kind of buy happiness by buying material things that that kind of happiness tends to be pretty fleeting, it turns out. Uh, and so we kind of got used to it. And so our lifestyle actually didn't change very much. Um, and then, uh, which was, which was good. I mean, I, I think kind of, you know, where we, we, set our priorities as opposed to just, oh, let's just keep buying more and more things to try to be happier. Uh, but then also we realized that, oh, well, we paid off our mortgage, but we haven't really been saving for our retirement savings. And so all that money that before was going to the mortgage, we now started investing it. And so we started investing very, very heavily at pretty significant amounts. Uh, you know, to, to be, And that ultimately led us to become financially dependent in our early 30s uh, when I was 32. Um, so that kind of all worked out uh, quite well. Wow, you're pretty much telling the exact same story as me, or like yeah. uh, cut from the same cloth. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I remember when, when you were on my show and we talked about. It, I was like, ah, this is like uh, talking to like a, you know, like 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 a brother I never I never had, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So s- similar to me, your wife uh, and you didn't have huge salaries, but you still managed to pay down your mortgage quickly. You did it all without resorting to eating eating ramen noodles and skipping annual holidays. Can you share the secrets of your success? Sure. Yeah. So one thing that helped a lot was that we were dual income. Uh, I mean, I mentioned kind of the 50% savings rate target that we had, and that is so much easier to achieve when you have dual, a dual income. Uh, now, obviously that, that were great for us. That's not necessarily the only way to do it. And that's not necessarily the best fit for everyone. I mean, if you're single or, or you're not in a you know really serious relationship, I mean, you shouldn't rush into marrying someone or moving in with them just because, hey, we want to be dual income, right? That, that should, there's, more, there's more things to consider than just yes, that. Um, but so what I like what you did, Sean, in your case where you're saying, okay, well, you, you weren't dual income, right? It was just you, but instead you, you found another really good alternative, which is you can rent out, a, you can still buy a house, but you rent out a portion of it, right? Or yes. if you did it want to do that, you could have rented out, let's say rooms in the house, right? And have like different roommates where they're paying, you know, they're paying off your mortgage and you just have one of the rooms, right? So that, that I think is a fantastic alternative if you aren't dual income. And then uh, one thing that I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I kind of dreamed about or fantasized about was uh, having doing both, right? So, so having dual income and I would always try to, every time we moved, I would try to persuade my wife to let us take on a tenant and like rent out the basement or something because it's like, oh, we're going to be dual income and we'll have a tenant. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> but she, she was very against that. Every, I, I failed to persuade her every single time. Darn it. This why my persistence. But I mean, I get it. Like not everybody wants a tenant living with them. But I mean, if you can pull off both, I mean, I can really, really uh, set you off. So, so yeah, so that was kind of one big thing that, that let us do that was a dual income or, or like I said, alternatively do, do what you did, which I think is a great, great strategy. Um, also not buying, um, not buying a too expensive of a house where the interest on a mortgage 
eats up too much of your monthly cash flow. That was a really, really big one, right? I mean, you can't pay off your mortgage quickly if so much of your money is going towards just paying down the interest because you wanted to get that amazing house that you've always dreamed of uh, right off the bat. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was staying away from debt. So we've, other than our mortgage debt, my wife and I have never had any sort of, uh, have never had any sort of debt. Um, and I find one, one area where that really comes into play is with cars. I find people uh, sometimes are very lax about getting financing on a car. Um, for us, every car we've ever owned, we bought with cash. Uh, it was a used car. It was nothing fancy. It was just to get us from point A to B, just you know, bought with cash, never had any financing. And so that helped. That also took away uh, not having that extra cash flow drain by paying that interest on the car loan also helped uh, substantially. And kind of the test I use there is if you, if you really want to get a car and you like the car, and but you say, well, I, I can't possibly get this car because it's uh, without financing because it's just too much money. Then to me, that answer is, well, then don't get that car. <laughs> get, a, get a cheaper car that you can't afford to just buy with cash, um, right? And then, and then that's, that's the solution around that. Um, and, then, and also downgrading from two cars to one. I know we did that quite a few years ago now uh, where I just started biking uh, as much as possible. I'm like, okay, you save a ton of money, but also you get exercise, right? Um, so now I actually, I barely ever drive. I, I pretty much bike just about everywhere. Uh, and so we just have one car if, if needed, right? Uh, and then that's it. Awesome. I mean, I bike everywhere as well. Gosh, uh, you're more similar than I thought. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm totally, totally, totally into biking. And it, it's, it's so efficient too, I find in terms of your, if you're trying to be, have an efficient day, because I remember, um, I, I don't know, this is kind of going on a side note, so feel free to stop me. But I remember when I, when I first started commuting to work, I thought I actually kind of crunched the numbers and I said, okay, wait a minute, it takes me, because you're on a bike, there's less lights, you can take shortcuts. It only took me about like five to 10 minutes longer to bike than to drive to work, right? Wow. And then, so I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. And then, but I'm also, I also want to work out every day for, let's say, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, right? And so I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm actually saving time by biking to work because before I would drive to work and then work out for an hour. But instead, if I'm actually just biking to work, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe it's taking me an extra 20 minutes, but I was going to work out for an hour anyway. And now I don't have to work out for that hour. So it, you know, it's a win, right? So that, that was kind of uh, the way I thought about it. And it just makes more time in your day, essentially. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so yeah, to deal with uh, with the lack of affordability in big cities, we're told to drive until you qualify. That's exactly what you did with your first home. Tell us about why you see it as a big mistake and what you did to correct it. Yeah, so that was an early mistake. Uh, you know, when we when we bought our first house, kind of out of university, we the, the having a short commute was really important to me. And so I remember just Google mapping. Okay, how long will it take to get from this house to my work? You know, the house we want to buy to my work, and it said twenty minutes. And I thought, oh, perfect, awesome. You know, and then just to <laughs> and then just to clarify, or, or just to you know, just to make sure I'm being diligent, I asked the real estate agent, who you know, of course, is totally unbiased. To say, <laughs> hopefully, you can sense the sarcasm in my voice to say, hey, with this commute be bad? I mean, you know, you know, the local area should, uh, you know, it's, it would, is this pretty, pretty close to my work? Oh, of course. Yeah. It's not bad. Everything. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Everything's good. Right. And then what you don't, and then later, you know, we move there and we realize, oh, wait a minute, it's 20 minutes when there's no traffic, no rush hour, no snow conditions, no car collisions. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, generally it took at least 40 minutes to get, so double that. It took at least 40, at least 40 minutes to get to work every day because of the traffic, the rush hour. And in the winter and, and, and because of car accidents happening all the time, this is like, 
GTA I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would it would be not uncommon for it to take an hour or more, uh, you know, especially during like December and such, right? Uh, and so that was a huge. So you know, make sure you you really factor that in. Don't just go with uh, oh well, Google says 20 minutes, so that's clearly all it is. Um, and of course, you know, the age you want to make the sales, so they're just like yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Um, so that that was kind of a big mistake lesson learned uh, in terms of. Um, kind of what we did. Well, eventually we ended up moving to a smaller city. So we used to live in Brampton. We moved back to Kitchener Waterloo. It's a smaller city. Traffic's not as bad. And I started basically biking to work. Uh, and then, so we only needed one car. So we saved a ton of money that way. And so that was the way that we solved that problem. Okay. Awesome. Um, and we're all, we're often told it makes no sense to pay down the mortgage when interest rates are slow, low, um, you'd be better off investing. Why did you decide to go against conventional wisdom and focus on burning your mortgage similar to me. Yeah, you know what? So I don't I don't have a terrific answer for that. It was it was actually kind of a sort of a mistake we did in a way. So what happened is I graduated 2007, 2008 we had the financial crisis, right? So I yes. Uh, so at this point, you know, I'm fresh out of school, focusing on the career. I'm not, you know, learning investments at night and learning about index investing at night. I'm trying to figure out how to do good at my job so I can get promoted and not get fired, right? <laughs> so that's where my time is going. And then 2008 hits, and and uh, you know, I have these people that I look up to that are mentoring me. All that are saying are basically freaking out because they're, you know, they, they're like, oh, I just lost. $10,000, uh, over, you know, a couple of days ago or what, you know what I mean? Just while that whole crisis is happening. And so that kind of made me see, uh, investing in the markets in the stock market as very, very risky. And it totally scared me off from it. And I said, you know what? I'm a risk averse guy. I don't want to risk losing money. I don't know about index investing at the time. I don't know about market cycles. I just said, you know what? This mortgage thing, I get it. I can just pay it off. If, you know, I, if we're doing 50% savings rate, we'll have it paid off in under six years. It'll be a done deal. We'll have all this extra cash flow. Let's do that. I feel comfortable doing it. And I, we just, I just kind of buried my head in the sand and we just went nuts paying down the mortgage. Um, and, you know, and now consequently, if I instead invested that money, we would have been better off. Uh, like our net worth would have been higher if we, we instead invested that 50, you know, that money we're saving from the 50% savings rate. As we know, when 2008, after it happened, it, it started going up quite a bit. The recovery was was pretty was very significant. Uh, yeah, our, you know, like I said, our net worth would have been considered be higher, um, like like a, like a five figure sum basically. You know, if we did that. Um, but you know, it, it, you know, it is what it is. It was kind of. Uh, yeah, I didn't do it. I did it. It was a fear-based decision, uh, not, not the best one. But with that said, you know there is a lot of value in having your house paid off when you're doing early retirement or an early semi-retirement, like basically what my wife and I did, uh, because there's no mortgage cash flow drain, and so that gives you a ton of stability. So, for example, markets can go down. Let's say there's a correction, the markets go down twenty percent. Well you're not forced to sell off your investments at a loss. You can wait for the, to, to ride out the market. You can wait for the investments to go back up. You're not forced to sell because you have to have money to pay your mortgage payment, right? Or to put food on the table, right? Exactly. And, so, and so there's a huge, huge benefit. And, and when you, if you research this, you'll see that kind of an overwhelming majority of sort of you know, experts in the field and people that study this say, yeah, you know, when you are retired, it's, I mean, you know, I don't like to use blanket kind of rules where this is always the correct answer, but, but you will see an overwhelming majority of people say, you know what, when you are retired, it's a good idea to have your mortgage paid off because markets can be very volatile. And by not having those mortgage payments every month, it gives you a really, really strong foundation of stability and you can kind of weather the storm that much better. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great point. I mean, I think it all comes down to how averse you are to risk 
for me, I mean, with precarious employment being the new norm and only being like myself paying the mortgage, I just wasn't comfortable investing and paying down the mortgage at the same time. My thought was, you know, get rid of the mortgage, then take that cash flow and invest. So, I mean, I could have, I paid off my mortgage in three years, but I figure I'm used to putting that money aside. I can invest in uh, catch up now. And plus I had a defined benefit pension plan at work. So, you know, that's kind of, that was kind of my thinking on awesome. it. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of prefer the guaranteed rate of return of paying down your mortgage, but I guess, you know, to each his own in terms of that decision is kind of a personal one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that you bring up an interesting point about how if you were single income, right? I mean, and that's very different than our case because in our case it was, oh, well, if let's say one of us got fired or laid off or whatever the case may be, well, we're living off only one salary anyway. So, okay, until you find another job, my salary will cover those, you know, will cover kind of our day-to-day expenses. We just want to invest in that month or two that it takes you to get a job, right? So, so I, I can see how, you know, especially if you're a risk-averse person, uh, I, I totally get why you would you decided to proceed that way, right? And especially, like you said, if you have a nice pension at work too, that kind of helps, helps as well. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So uh, there's a never-ending debate about whether it's better to own or rent your home. Can you walk us through your thought process on why you chose to own instead of rent uh, real estate? Sure, yeah. So I think um, this is a really heated topic, right? And, and there's very strong opinions on both sides. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people can make when they're thinking of this is to think that there is one golden rule that's always the correct answer. So it is always better to buy a home than rent no matter what, uh, or it's always better to rent uh, no matter what because houses are overpriced or whatever your justification be. It's not that simple. Simple is nice and convenient, but when you're making such a big decision to buy a home, which is the biggest purchase of your life, you actually do want to do the math. And I know that doesn't sound fun and people, a lot of people don't like to do the math and to think of all the variables and all of that. But I mean, you really have to because the real estate prices, I mean, basically what there, there's, there's kind of two components, right? There's sort of the financial and then there's the lifestyle preference. So the financial one being, well, this is all a function of, well, how much are houses in the area that you want to buy and how much is rent in the area that you want to buy? I mean, those are two very big things, right? If, how, if, if it's a lot cheaper to rent than it is to buy and you're saving so much money on renting that you could then take that and invest it and earn a high, nice rate of return, maybe that's the best option for you, right? Or maybe after you factor in all those expenses of owning a home, then owning a home is, is just as much as renting or maybe only slightly more, right? And so maybe in those cases, it makes sense to buy, right? So it really is a function of, like I said, how... What is the rent in that area that you're at, and what is the the cost of housing in the area? Yeah, so you so I find you really really have to um, you really have to consider it. And then of course there's the lifestyle preference too, which is a big thing. So some things to consider are are you going to be living there long term, right? If you're moving every few years, um, then owning a home is not a really good idea generally because it's extremely expensive to be selling and buying a home all the time. There's very very high transaction costs when you sell a home, right? Uh, like the real estate. Uh, Agent commissions, for example, right? Land um, yeah, that, that right. There, there's, there's, um, there's just, there's a, there's a ton. Like legal fees, you're gonna have to probably do some repairs before you sell the home to bring, you know, to bring it up to snuff. You know, there's so much, right? So if you're doing every few years, you probably shouldn't be buying a home because you're, you're all these returns are gonna get eaten up by these expenses. The other thing is, do you want flexibility to do what you want with your home, right? If you have your home, if you own it, you have more control, right? Versus if you're renting, you're restricted to kind of what the landlord wants you to do. The other thing is, does it coincide? side with the lifestyle that you want. So for example, 
do you want flexibility uh, to be able to move around to take the best opportunities for your career, right? Like if you're a young person, you have no kids, right? Uh, you know, you're, you're, you, um, you get a great opportunity, a great promotion, but you have to move to another city or another country, you know, you can take that, right? Because you're renting, you don't have to, you don't, you're not taking this hit because you now have to sell a home, right? And then versus look at the other extreme where you say, okay, well, maybe you have kids, right? And you, you want to lay down some roots. You don't want to move your kids to a new school every year or every two years. I mean, that, that's, that's not good. I, I had that growing up. It's, it's not a good idea. <laughs> so uh, you don't want kids to, you don't want, yeah, you don't want to put your kids through that, right? You want some stability in their life. You want some, you know, them to have their friends, that kind of a thing, right? So there's that quantitative piece, but there's also the sort of qualitative piece too that you need to consider. Uh, and then the other big question is how much are you saving by renting versus buying? And you can't just compare rent to the mortgage payment. I think that's a common mistake people do. So when you're when you own the property, you have to worry about property tax, utilities because utilities might be included when you're, you're renting. There's maintenance costs which can be significant. There's house insurance, right? There's the costs when you finally do sell the property, like agent commission, lawyer fees, repairs to the house, right? And and then the other big question too is if you if if you do save a lot of money by renting, which can definitely be the case, what are you actually going to do with that money? Are you going to invest it or are you going to spend it? Are you going to spend it buying some new fancy car or are you going to do give it some really put in some really good investments like do some index investing, right, and do it properly, uh, you know, and let it grow, right? That can be a really really big decision. I mean, because if you're just going to spend it anyway on just crap that's going to depreciate in value, then then yeah, you know what, you should buy the house because at least it'll force you to save some money instead of you buying these depreciating assets, right? Um, um, so I think you really have to evaluate just some of these things before you make a decision. And so as you can see, it's not really a kind of golden rule where you should always buy and renting is always a waste of money because uh, it really depends on the person, both financially, quantitatively and qualitatively. That's a great answer. answer. Thanks so much. Uh, so yeah, uh, how has passive income changed your life for the better? What tips can you offer for those looking to follow in your footsteps and generate passive income of their own? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do, I do have two kind of uh, like internet businesses. One is a, is a rock climbing kind of training site. Uh, and so that was really good because that made, that was a business I had on the side that, you know, during my full-time, uh, when I was also working full-time. And so that created enough money that we can go, that would pay for, you know, like if you want to go out to eat or vacations, that kind of a thing. And so that helped accelerate our, make our savings rate basically even higher because we had that extra source of income. And then right now I have buildwolfcanada.ca, which is our, uh, you know, the personal finance investing site that I have. Uh, and so that, you know, that bring, it, it's a very much an educational resource, but it also brings in some money too, just sponsorships. And, and uh, I have an ETF investing course that, that that's on there too. So, you know, that brings in money as well. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it has helped, uh, it has helped a lot. Um, and then of course we had the rental property, which is also, you know, we had the rent coming in every month. So um, yeah, so no, I mean, it, it, it's been, it's definitely been helpful. It, it, it helped us achieve our goals a lot quicker, help us pay off our mortgage a lot earlier, help us become financially independent earlier. But I, uh, but I will caution people that passive income is a bit of a deceptive term, I would say. Um, I, and, and the more, exp and I mean, I've done the landlording thing, I've done the side business, like I've, I've done it, right? And so I can kind of say from experience now that uh, it, true passive, none of that stuff is really truly passive income because you still have to do some work and sometimes it's a significant amount uh, of, of work. If you want really true passive, to me, true passive income is you do index investing and then you basically, the dividends you, you get from when you're doing index investing or when you sell off some and get the capital gains, to me, that's truly passive investing because it really doesn't take much time at all sort of to manage your portfolio if you do it that way. With any of these other businesses or landlording, you know, it, it, does, it does still take 
uh, a considerable amount of time. I mean, you know, we, I've had to take quite a few vacations when I was a, a, a landlord, like vacations as in I take a vacation day because something went wrong with the house, right? Like the furnace broke in December, for example, right? And so, and then the thing, and then people will say, oh, well, you know, you have, um, uh, oh, well, you just hire someone to do that. And, and I mean, it's true. Yes, I, I did hire a professional furnace company to go and fix the furnace in December. But I mean, I have a family living there with several kids, right? So I'm taking the day off work. I'm going over there. I'm making sure the contractor shows up there as soon as possible that they're fixing it. I'm bringing in heater, every heater I own to keep the family warm because it's December, right? Uh, so this is this was my vacation, one of my vacation days, oh, right? You know what I mean? So, so, don't, so even if you hire someone to do it, there's so much uh, of your money is t- you know tied up in this property and and, and this is a real family living there right like you care about these people you want people to be fine right uh you know so so i do want to make sure that they're taken care of right and so it's not really passive in, in you know 100 passive kind of in that sense um so that's one thing that i would um and same with internet businesses too, right? Where, yeah, you can create it and yeah, they generate passive income. But if you don't do anything for them, if you just leave them alone for years and years, they're going to start to die off too, right? Because there's going to be competition, technology is going to change, that kind of, you know, all of that, right? So, um, so just, just I, I warn people to be careful of that, just to set the right expectation, you know, make sure you actually enjoy that as opposed to just thinking you're going to make it once, never touch it again. And it's just going to be bringing in money every, every day because it's not. No, totally. That's, Great advice. And tying into the last question, what advice can you offer for somebody who wants to be a landlord like yourself? Because as you mentioned, it's not just some, uh, it's not just like buy a property, the tenants live there and you never have to take a phone call or lift a finger. Um, So yeah, what advice can you offer for somebody who wants to be a, a landlord and generate that extra cash flow? Sure. Yeah. So, so the one thing that I find, and this is like a big warning as well, uh, is Okay, so if you, if you go online and you search, oh, real estate investing and how to learn, right? You're going to get so much of these kind of rah-rah, you know, type of uh, uh, places where it's like, oh, make, you know, millions off real estate and oh, it's so easy and the money just shows up in your bank <laughs> account and blah. Like, it, that's, that's not the case and I find it's really easy and I, and I, I almost fell into this trap as well uh, because I remember, you know, when I wanted to first get into real estate investing, I literally went on Amazon and I bought every like, top-rated book on the subject. I read everything I could, you know, on there. I didn't buy any of those like crazy $10,000 courses, which is just, you know, Amazon was my, was my teacher and joining communities and stuff. And then, and then when you're, a lot of times when you read that stuff, you're like, oh, well, this is awesome. You just, yeah, you just buy the property, you rent it and makes money. You actually have to really crunch the numbers because I remember I was all ready to do it. And then I started crunching the numbers and it's like, oh, wow, this actually isn't that easy to find the property that actually meets this criteria, right? I mean, to find a property that that actually generates enough cash flow every month to actually cover your mortgage payments and all the expenses and still have some positive cash flow even after all these expenses every month, that can be extremely difficult to do in certain markets. I mean, in some markets, it's a lot easier. Um, in some markets, it's really, really difficult. And so don't kind of fall into that trap of just real estate is always a great investment no matter what and no matter where you buy it, it's always going to go up and money's just going to come in and that's all there is to it. I don't even really have to do the math. You really have to do the math <laughs> is, is kind of the big thing. The second thing is tenant screening. So that can, I mean, I've, I've heard of some crazy horror stories about tenant screening. With us, we had the most amazing tenants ever. And that, but I remember I would, I did tenant screening to the extreme. I mean, I I called every reference. I asked for you know like the credit check. I I just every little best practice that you read upon. Did about you fingerprint them? 
What's it? No, I did not. <laughs> no, I can't remember if I made them do a criminal check. I might have. I don't know. I did. I did quite a bit. I did quite a bit. Um, it, I, yeah, it was. It was very. Um, yeah, I, I took it. Basically, it's like if you research it, ten and best practices. I made sure I did every single one because, okay. and especially in Ontario, the, the laws very much favor the tenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in some provinces, it's different. It's more lack. It's more pro a landlord in Ontario in particular, it's very pro tenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you, you know, you do want to make sure that you find the right tenant uh, so that they don't destroy your property so that they don't manipulate or, you know, try to take advantage of all these kind of laws. Right. And so, so that was a really, really big one. I can't stress that enough because they could destroy your investment if you do it wrong. So that's one area where I got a huge kind of good return on my time investment. Um, and then the third thing was just keeping a really good relationship with the tenants. I mean, uh, you know, basically not being a slum landlord instead, you know, being, being a good person, uh, you know, th- this is a family. These are people, right. Uh, you know, have a g- good relationship with them. And I mean, I, I did it not just to get some sort of, it wasn't some strategic thing to try to get some payoff. I mean, I just, I really liked them, you know, it, I wanted them to, to succeed and be happy with their home and all of that. Right. And it's a, it's a win-win, right. They're happy. They take care of the property better too. They let me know if there's an issue. So, so focusing on the relationship, uh, you know, it, that really helped us out when we would, eventually sold the rental property uh, because they were, you know, they were very easygoing. They were very accommodating. I mean, when we were, you know, sometimes you go to these houses where it's, it was a rental property before and like the tenants made the, the places like a mess. So, you know, you're doing, you're trying to sell the house and people are coming to the house and it's a complete mess because the tenants don't want to clean it up or, or they're very like inhospitable to anyone that's looking in to evaluate the house, you know? So like, like tenants can make your life a living hell if they really want to. Right. Uh, and so by having that nice relationship with, with them, right. You, you know, it's a mutual beneficial thing. Everyone wins. It's just a nice smooth ride. Uh, and, and yeah, that was a, I mean, for us it worked out great. The, the tenants were fantastic. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely attest to that last point being a landlord myself. So thanks for that. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah. So, I mean, my main thing is uh, I have the Build Wealth Canada podcast. It's buildwealthcanada.ca or you can search it through your uh, whatever podcast player that you use. Um, so there I basically interview um, in people like Sean, other kind of experts in the field of personal finance, investing, financial planning, just to try to get the best kind of best practices specifically for Canadians. Uh, and then so we can kind of all learn from it. So that's kind of one of the things that I do. I've been doing for quite a while. It's been kind of the top personal finance investing podcast for quite a while. Um, so that's that definitely uh, you know, check that out. Uh, and then I have a, a, an ETF index investing course as well. So if you go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest, that's basically where I, because uh, I get a lot of questions from the show about people that want to get started in index investing and they're not sure how to do it. And so what I ended up doing is actually just creating a course where I show everyone how to do everything step by step. And I, I literally show everyone what I do. Uh, like we're financially independent now. So we have quite a bit of uh, investable assets that like I have a, mon- a lot of money in the game. So it's in my best interest to make sure that, uh, that I'm doing things properly. And so I, I do that. And then I kind of show other individual, anyone else who wants to learn how to do it, how we do it. Right. And, and based on all these kind of best practices of learning from the experts, how to do it properly. Um, and so that was kind of, that's kind of another thing that, uh, uh, that, that I built, uh, to, you know, to help people. And it's, it's been, uh, it's been great. Awesome. Well, definitely make sure to check that out. Okay. Thanks again for being on the uh, the show today, Cornell. It was a great discussion. Yeah, not not a problem. It was uh, great to be on and uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, 
and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.